Hello and welcome to this special edition of the China in Africa podcast, a guide for journalists on how to cover the upcoming Forum on China-Africa Cooperation Summit in Johannesburg. I'm Eric Olander. And I'm Corbett von Staden at Witz University in Johannesburg. We've prepared this podcast specifically to help journalists on how to frame the key issues at this year's FOCAC Leaders' Summit in December. We'll take a look at what the main stories are and how to best report them. Now, for a lot of journalists, this will likely be the first time assigned to cover or report from a major China-Africa conference like this. And it isn't an easy story to cover, regardless if you're on-site at FOCAC in Johannesburg or if you're reporting from your newsroom. So to help you better understand what to expect in covering a FOCAC conference, we thought it would be helpful to speak with someone who's actually reported on events like these before. James Schneider is a London-based senior correspondent for New African magazine, and before that he was editor-in-chief of the website Think Africa Press. James, thank you so much for joining us on the show. Thanks for having me. Let's get started with your experience in reporting from the African Union. Last time when we spoke with you on the podcast, um, that, that you were reporting on big announcements relating to China and the African Union. What can journalists expect at these kind of high-level China-Africa events? What, what is the experience of reporting there actually like? Well, that particular time we spoke, I think, is a bit of a cautionary tale. And um, uh, it was important for journalists turning up because at these things you get... Very, very big things announced, huge amounts of money, game-changing, life-changing, world-changing infrastructure projects and so on and so forth, and very big smiles and big handshakes and generally quite light on the detail. And as we, I mean, being quite light on the detail is probably being um, a little too generous, almost almost no detail. And um, uh, they are designed so that that's what the headline is going to be in the paper, you know, $8 billion, $20 billion, whatever that that figure is. But I think really journalists should try as much as possible to um, to report in the context of what the thing actually is. So always look up, especially in China, Africa related things, especially things to do with infrastructure, look up to see if the thing's actually new, right? Because so many things uh, are uh, have been announced several times before they haven't really started, or some of them have started, some of them are going along pretty well, but then they are re-announced or rolled into a new bundle of a huge amount of, of, of money that's supposedly a new pot. So I think um, just make sure you, uh, when you get any of these big big announcements, make sure you find someone technical that you can talk to, and they're going to actually be quite quite difficult to find but that's going to be your person who's going to give you the real the real edge on the story so you can really break that down a bit for your readers you know one of my experience in covering these major conferences and i've covered nato conferences and a number of of major summits in paris and london over the years and one of the things i find in the press center is that a certain narrative kind of takes hold and you start to see kind of what others are covering so what's the reuters headline what's the ap headline and one of the things that kind of i found even with my own coverage reporting for CNN and AP, was that it started to morph into that own narrative. And it's just, it just happens. You get pulled into this. Tell us a little bit about when you're at, say, in the AU summit and what you might anticipate being at a FOCAC summit press center. How do you practically, I mean, in, in tangible ways, resist that pull of getting sucked into the narrative of the major announcement, you know, the $20 billion big check that's being kind of unveiled and whatnot. Any advice that you can give journalists covering one of these events on how to avoid the kind of prevailing dominant narrative that comes out so that you can make the coverage more distinct, more creative? Yeah, I I think you've got to 
um, pick before you go into it. You can't cover all of the issues that are that are that are going to come up, and um, you can't you know add the value on uh, on that top line story, which is just you know the twenty billion dollars or something like that. So um, try. Uh, I would suggest. Um, Picking a couple of storylines that you really want to you really want to chase down, you really want to succeed, you really want to find out what's going on in those, and then you will find another couple of journalists probably who are working on the same kind of thing, and you can form a little a little informal team, and you can chase round chase round that story and help each other out a bit. So, and um, I mean, the, just the biggest mistake is to try to cover is to try to cover everything because unless you're part of a really really big team and you're being um, well managed and well organized in which case you don't have to listen to me at all um then uh then you're you're going to need to to concentrate on something small enough that you can or just just few enough that you can you really get to grips with um you know so these these summits you generally have these big official announcements and then they have a lot of all kinds of meetings on the sidelines. Um, to which extent do journalists have access to what's going on there? And is there a way to, to position oneself to try and get a little bit more out of the summit than just the, the, the official announcements? Is it possible to get some kind of other information there as well? Uh, yes, it generally is. I mean, obviously, there's stuff that goes on behind closed doors that you're not allowed immediate access to. But you can find out where those things are taking place and, um, you know, when they're going on and maybe camp out a bit outside them. Uh, first thing that if anybody is flying in South Africa, first thing anyone should do is get yourself a South African SIM and, uh, make sure you go and find the, the, the various different press officers who are responsible for things. Make sure that they've got, uh, make sure that they've got your number and explain to them in the nicest, least threatening, most positive kind of way what you're interested in in doing and if they can alert you to if particular things are going on. And then you know you you, you see how um, you know how far that takes you and what you know what side events are taking place. Some of them will be public. Some of them they will be perfectly happy to have journalists in. Some of them will be places where you might be able to you know grab a couple of minutes with with um, with somebody who's quite difficult to get hold of outside as you catch them slightly unawares. Well, let's pick up on that concept of reaching out to the various stakeholders to try to get their comment. One of the most difficult aspects of covering any China-Africa story, particularly a summit where politicians are involved, is really getting the voice of the Chinese side. Chinese politicians, diplomats, official actors tend to be much more reserved with the media. Oftentimes, there's a language barrier. Oftentimes, the journalists themselves can be intimidated by the Chinese side if they're not familiar with how it works and whatnot. Uh, in your own experience covering China-Africa in general, but also at events like the AU Summit, how did you go about getting that China side of the story to make sure you had a comprehensive perspective in your reporting? Well, sometimes I've had no success at all. I had one uh, interview that I, I had with the with a Chinese ambassador to to particular to, to particular country, um, which I managed to sort of negotiate the interview, got him to sit down, started talking, and then at some point he not I don't think from anything I said, but he just sort of suddenly got in a mad panic that really he shouldn't be doing that, and pretty much just ran away from me, which is uh, which, was, which was pretty frustrating, and then and then sort of sent a series of um, sort of pleading at between sort of pleading and upset and not threatening, but just sort of, you know, uh, annoyed text messages saying, you know, please don't do anything with this. This didn't happen, blah, blah, blah. All very strange. Um, 
uh, I think for for trying to get if you don't know who all the players are, and lots of people obviously won't know who all the players in the in the China Africa game are. Um, try to speak to some of the Chinese journalists who are who are there. I mean, people the, the, the different groups try to keep themselves to themselves. Uh, I I think, but if you can at all reach out to journalists uh, to Chinese journalists, that's one thing I wish I had done more and could do more. Um, uh, but I have a bit and you can, you know, you can find out a little bit of extra information. You might be able to get, um, a tip where someone's going to be and a bit of help in decoding some of the, some of the language and some of the communication, which, uh, if it's, if it's aiding to, it might be quite difficult. Now, Kobus, I'm anticipating at this year's FOCAC, we might see some, some differences in how the Chinese approach their media management. And we got some hints of this in the Xi Jinping visit to the United States, uh, that there was a lot more uh, kind of progressive diplomacy that was being done in, on the media side and media management, media relations. So, for example, we saw these, uh, these highly produced videos being published out onto YouTube about the Chinese contribution to the U.S. economy. That was something that was new. Uh, Chinese spokespeople in Washington made themselves much more available. So we might see an evolution in how the Chinese manage the media and interact with the media at this summit, only because they've shown some indications in their other uh, diplomatic functions, particularly in the United States and in other places, that they seem to be some widening. Now, I'm not going to pretend that they're going to be like the White House and the Americans who are just, you know, totally media friendly in that sense, but, or more media friendly, I should say. But I wouldn't be surprised if we saw a different flavor of how the Chinese interact and at least make themselves a little bit more available, potentially with diplomats and some of their ambassadors, in order to carry their party line. The problem that I've found in dealing with Chinese journalists is that oftentimes they are simply going to repeat the official propaganda that has been set out by the Ministry of Foreign Affairs to kind of propagate what their party line is for the whole conference. So sometimes the Chinese journalists can be a little bit reserved. So I'd be cautious necessarily relying too much on them. But I think your point is well taken, is to try and befriend people in the press room who might be at least be able to give you a different perspective or at least a Chinese view and a Chinese angle on that But, but I, I, I more meant um, practically, as in um, they may know where you know they may know where things are going to happen and where where people are going to do things and what's what's planned because they will have some uh, additional briefing that you may not have that's an excellent point that's an excellent point Kobus, let me ask you a quick question in terms of what you see as some of the prevailing narratives that will come out and how you think journalists might be able to penetrate those narratives beyond the official line something that james was talking about at the top of the show well, you know, kind of as James said, there, there generally tends to be lots of big numbers announced. Um, and, you know, kind of this is going to be a particularly interesting year for that because we're with, you know, kind of it's happening against the background of Chinese uh, restructuring of its of, of its economy um, and, you know, kind of a slowdown in the Chinese economy. And, you know, so there might well be gestures to try and to try and show the China that nothing has changed. You know, kind of, I mean, Xi Jinping um, announced extremely generous kind of sums of money that's going to be paid to the AU, for example, when he was in New York now. Um, so we might see more of that. Um, you know, kind of, and in, the, in that case, it then becomes a question of, of balancing that and seeing 
seeing, you know, kind of how those numbers fit in with with other economic data coming out of China at the same time, and the and at the same time the impact of that economic data on African economies. So, the economy of South Africa being a particularly good example, it tends to fluctuate with the Chinese economy. You know, kind of like um, the moment when there's kind of negative data coming out of China, so the South African the Johannesburg stock exchange starts sinking. So, you know, kind of so so putting that in context, I think is one thing. Um, in the second place is also large geopolitical, you know, kind of developments happening. So, in, in particular, you know, kind of since the last FOCAC summit, we've seen the development of the, the um, One Belt, One Road na- narrative coming out of Beijing. Um, you know, one of using infrastructure, massive infrastructure developments to connect China to Europe and to East Africa. Um, you know, so the 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 ports and shipping lanes on the one hand and massive kind of rail developments on the other are both ways to connect China to the rest of the world, but also to position China at the center of a new kind of development zone. So I think, you know, kind of putting, like finding a way to, to, tell Africa's story within this kind of geopolitical, greater geopolitical kind of context, I think is, is the challenge. Um, James, actually, I wanted to ask you, as someone who's, who's reported a lot on the ground in Africa, and also, you know, kind of at these kind of, in these kind of summit events, um, how do you balance those two? How do you not just make it a kind of official announcement, but, but actually also present Africa in some kind of, you know, kind of more complex, more in a, in a richer kind of way? I mean, I think you have to try to get a bit outside just the conference hall itself and try to, exactly as you're saying, place it into context. So what does this, what does this, this engagement, what does this engagement really mean? What is this going to mean uh, to, you know, to a particular country, to a particular region? And how is it affected on the ground? And then and try, to, try to bring that in because uh, the, 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 the big numbers, I mean, who knows the difference between $18 billion and $20 billion? It's difficult to get any kind of tangible feel for that. But if you can translate that in any way into, well, what are the, the kind of costs and benefits of this? You might be able to look at um, uh, some uh, uh, small traders and see what's going on to uh with them but then compare that to a um you know like a like the like the addis metro for example to give a kind of concrete feeling of of what what this relationship does mean you know as a western journalist like yourself who covers africa and and again who's covered china africa for quite some time how do you when you're putting your stories together avoid kind of falling prey to the what I call the embedded narratives. And those embedded narratives typically, and these are broad strokes, which are, are characterizations and stereotypes to some degree, but there's always some truth to them, is that the Western and international media coverage tends to focus on the big picture, oftentimes with some sweeping generalizations. They talk about Africa as a continent, China as a kind of singular entity, and how it's engaging the two. And that's oftentimes where you see these more negative types of, of coverage of both China in terms of being an aggressor and Africa being a victim. That again, it's a broad simplification, I know, but at the same time, that does seem to be a current of some of the international coverage. Conversely, we see the Chinese coverage being very, very kind of, you know, rah, rah, win, win, mutual benefit, everything's great. And then oftentimes the African coverage is extraordinarily diverse because it tends to be more project focused, much more local in nature. And so there is less of a um, kind of singular type of thread that goes through all of it. But at the same time, in the African coverage, there is an oversimplification of the Chinese. 
So has, as a journalist from one of these different areas where you bring your own editorial baggage with you, when you're covering a story like this, what advice do you have to try and check that and try and make sure you're not falling into some of the editorial traps that are out there? Well, one way that you can do it, especially when you're looking at the, the big economic uh, relationship, is don't start from the position of how different uh, Chinese engagement with, is with Western engagement, but start from the similarities and start where you can build up um, you know what isn't so different. What bits of this relation with, with these relationships are are fairly common? Where are they w- working together for good and for for good and for ill? And I think once you do that, then you can start to say, right, well, here you know here is a particular a particular practice or a particular theme or something like that which does stand out and does stand apart. But if you place it in that context of not. China is doing this one thing and it's very, very different to, to what the U.S. is doing. And But starts to go, well, you know, if we look at uh, how Chinese commodity companies and Western commodity companies operate, okay, where are the differences? Okay, there are real differences in, in uh, some of the labor standards, but there aren't necessarily real differences in some of the... Uh, subsidiary models that they use or other things like that which are quite which are quite macro so I think that's where you can start to kind of pass out really what is distinctively Sino-African about uh, you know China-Africa as opposed to you know what is uh, Africa and the rest of the world. Yeah, if I can, if I can add to that, I think I would also suggest trying to break down the concept of China, especially. I mean, obviously, yeah. one needs to break down the concept of Africa as well. But you know, kind of China. There's a there's a bunch of very influential Chinese actors all all working in Africa at the same time and frequently in competition. So try and make a distinction between state-owned enterprises and private enterprises in the first place, between um, you know between different kinds of corporate culture within China. Um, um, between regional, you know, kind of financing coming from from regional financing bodies and you know, kind of and, and official state banks, for example, you know, and tr- try and kind of break it down because these these different these different actors are different. They have different kinds of agendas and different kind of influences, and also they are in direct competition. So frequently, you would find two or three different Chinese actors up against each other in you know, kind of for one tender. So you know, kind of I you know that that is another is another a good way to add nuance, I think, to the reporting. So I'd like to end the show here by asking both of you a very specific question about how journalists should prepare for this. So let's put yourself in the position that you are a producer or you're an editor who's going to be in a newsroom and you have to produce either in-house packages or you have to produce, uh, you know, studio reports, talk shows that are going to focus on the Chinese in Africa and FOCAC or you are a correspondent, a reporter, or part of a reporting team that will actually be deployed to Johannesburg to participate in the press coverage from the FOCAC Summit in December. So with that in mind, I'd like each of you to give me two or three specific resources that you would recommend for journalists who are new to the subject and what they can do to properly prepare and read into uh, to get kind of caught up because now, you know, they'll have a few weeks ahead of time before they go. So let's start with you, Kobus, and then we'll get to you, James. Kobus, two or three specific resources for journalists to prepare for FOCAC. The first one, I just have to do a little bit of log rolling for our own work, um, simply because I really actually think it is one of the, the most accessible and, and useful sites on China Africa on the web. Um, we put out a specific... 
um, you know, the resource for journalists on um, reportingfocac.com. It's reporting-focac.com. Um, and that's essentially China Africa 101, you know, kind of for people coming to it fresh. Um, also, our Facebook feed, we have a curated feed of, of, um, of China African news that, that runs 24 hours a day. So, so, you know, kind of we do that and we organize it under, under useful headings like investment, like, you know, kind of specific country names and so on. So, you know, kind of if you're looking for something specific. Um, more than that, I would draw on the, the uh, academic community and also the think tank community. South Africa is very, good think tanks. I would particularly um, recommend two. The one is the Center for Chinese Studies at Stellenbosch University, um, and you're going to be you're going to be like a lot of journalists are going to be speaking with them. They're excellent, and, and they they put out a ton of policy briefs and you know kind of background documents and so on. Very very useful, particularly on China Africa relations. And then um, the South African Institute for International Affairs, um, SIA, which is at um, at Wits University, and they also they have an emerging powers um, program which specifically focuses on China Africa and. They have some of the, the um, you know, kind of most famous people in the field are affiliated with them. Um, also, the Institute for Security Studies in Pretoria does really good work, especially in relation to defense um, and arms trade. So those are, those are the ones I'd recommend. James, what are the two or three resources that you think journalists can do to prepare to cover this story? Well, besides, obviously, from yourselves, I would, um, and particularly thinking about what the, the themes that might emerge from, from this summit are, I would... Uh, I'd invite people to look at the work of Martin Davies on um, how China's macro economy relates to um, uh, African commodity economies and what effect that relationship is going to have. I think that's a very useful uh, starting point for, for, for journalists trying to get their, get their head around that bit of the story. And then uh, one, particularly, one particularly geeky thing, but it might... Um, if you're a bit ahead of the game on this, it might stop um, some of the announcements not seeming quite, uh, you know, seeming a bit more than they are. Take a look at um, uh, NEPAD, which is the, the, the new uh, partnership for, for African development, which is part of the African Union. And have a look at some of their um, big infrastructure uh, deals, which are supposedly taking place or supposedly in preparation, which, uh, which aren't. And just... Um, you just familiarize yourselves with those a little bit so that it, some, if someone announces something that is new and shiny, you can pretty quickly go, oh, no, I know that that is, that is this other thing. And then you'll be able to ask the good questions and really, you know, really do the good reporting. I'll put my two down. One is the China Africa Knowledge Project uh, that's based out of New York. But they have got a searchable database of academics, scholars, journalists and analysts. So it's an excellent way if you need to get quotes that may be outside of the realm that you're in at the moment, you can reach out to people like Howard French, who's the scholar, author, and journalist at Columbia University, Deborah Braudigam, who's at Johns Hopkins University, Solange Chadelach. There's all these different experts. They all have a listing in the China Africa Knowledge Project. And then finally, Twitter is a fantastic resource. We have on our reporting-focac.com page uh, really an amazing Twitter page, if I do say so myself, that kind of breaks it down by journalists, authors, universities, and you can follow kind of what people are saying in real time about the conference. So those are my two resources. Uh, of course, ChinaAfricaProject.com is another great resource, as Kobus said, not to use this to only self-promote, but uh, we do want to take advantage of that opportunity. Hey, James, thank you so much for joining us and all of your insights. We, we can't tell you how much we appreciate it. And uh, just it's been a, a, just a wonderful discussion. 
Nation. Thanks so much. I've really, really enjoyed it. James Schneider is a London-based senior correspondent for New Africa magazine and a veteran of reporting on Africa and China and Africa, particularly from major summits like the African Union Summit in Addis Ababa. So uh, he had a few just amazing insights on how to cover the upcoming FOCAC Summit in December. Again, reporting-focac.com. Kobus and I are updating that site up until the conference itself and then even after the conference. But it's a site that will live for a long time because it's Kobus pointed out, it is a China Africa 101. Uh, it's a great introduction to the story. This story is changing very, very fast. Uh, and really, the most important thing for any journalist to do is to not get locked into one narrative because it is, again, evolving faster than most of us can actually keep up with. So for Kobus van Staden, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs>